Coming up next on Rugby Wrap-Up, Hook, Friday, Lewis and McCarthy talking Rugby World Cup and Saracens. Welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy and Steve Lewis in Midtown Manhattan talking rugby. Steven, we just had a good time on the other side of the pond. Yes, we did. And we're still talking to one another. And we only had one argument, so that's not too bad over about six days. It's pretty good. Two old ladies staying together, traveling like that, and living in the same quarters. The odd couple. Yes. And we'd be remiss not to thank Mr. David Barry of the Ramblin' Jesters. Infinite hospitality and patience. Much, much, much patience. Uh, but we are, speaking of patience, we have our two men calling in from overseas, Mr. George Hook and Mr. Mike Friday. George, welcome. You're in Dublin, back home. Yeah, sitting in my home uh, in the den where all the finest rugby videos of my career uh, were created. We're going to welcome Mr. Mike Friday, who doesn't know whether he's coming or going, what time zone he's in. He just got off a plane from Japan. Mike, are you back in England? I am for a few days and uh, before flying on back into camp San Diego. So boys are off this week. We're back at it uh, in full on in prep for Dubai uh, Sunday onwards. So uh, were you slowed down by all that parade traffic in England for the parade? Oh, they didn't have the parade. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, let's get right into it. We're going to go through the World Cup a little bit, and then we're going to get into some other stuff after the break. But I wanted to start off with Mr. Steve Lewis, a question, because this is right in the Champagne Socialist uh, humanitarian wheelhouse that he lives in. Are Saya Khaleesi and Nelson Mandela forever now mentioned in the same breath? Are you having a laugh? No. In the same breath? There's no comparison. One, one of them's captain of a sports team. The other spent 27 years in prison, 18 years in Robben Island, protesting the inhumanity and racism of apartheid South Africa. There's no comparison. So your, an- your answer is no. It would be no. <laughs> <laughs> well, but wait a minute. Hold on. There, there is some... There's a connection. There's a connection, right? They are symbols. Uh, and actually, one leads on from the other. For, for Mandela, it was about him embracing the uh, sport of the oppressors, the white man's sport, just after ENC came to power. For Khaleesi, it, it's, been, it's, it's an interesting fine man that he is. It's, it's not the same comparison, but he is the symbol of um, integration. So this team is the first integrated team. You know, there was a lot of um, opposition to quotas and, and, um, and the like from white South African society, but the, the team has gone there. It has a healthy, reflective comp, uh, complement of um, African players, black players, who played more than their fair part, and Khaleesi is that symbol. So what you have is the, is the rainbow nation actually reflected in the team as opposed to just the leader embracing Francois Pinar, the uh, Panzer tank commander. <laughs> and Matt Damon, uh, Matt Damon guy. Uh, George, you were the only one, I believe, out of the four of us. That, alive, alive at the time. <laughs> yeah. George, you were the only one of the four of us, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that was at the 95 Cup. Is that not true? And, and if so... What is your take on this with Mandela and Khaleesi? You mentioned them in the same breath because what we, all of us in 95, 
what we hoped for those of us like me who had who had been members of the Irish anti-apartheid movement who hadn't been in South Africa. Suddenly we saw a great new dawn. Uh, this World Cup was wonderful because South Africa won and there were a healthy uh, contingent of black players, as Steve talks about. And and whilst I, I, I said South Africa were going to win, I wanted them to win. I am delighted they've won. But let's not dress it up in anything more than South Africa have won an international sporting tournament. It is nothing else but that. Mike, let's switch over to the game itself. And George mentioned the word grim, and I'm going to kind of make light of it by saying it's, it was a grim result for you, specifically since you flew all the way over to Japan. Did you fly business or coach? Oh, I was in the front for once. It was all right, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> Doesn't normally happen when we fly, but for once I managed to get myself in the front. You, you will never want to fly again behind that curtain. Well, I will be flying that curtain behind that curtain on Sunday because that's what we do at USA Rugby. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, in front of the curtain. But anyway, uh, from um, a coaching standpoint, would Sinclair have made a difference? I think, like having been there and watching it live, there were there were a few things to to note. I think South Africa changed the way they approached the game first twenty minutes because they didn't play their brutal game. They played out the back and they then they went wide, and I think that dis- disorientated England's D to start with. Um, and then England made the adjustment and then South Africa went to the brutality that they have uh, in their forwards and their carrying. And um, and I thought they were smart. I think what Sinclair would have done was he would have allowed England to probably get a little bit more movement in their own attacking patterns when they had opportunities because of his ability to, to move the small pass, the simple pass. So I, I think he certainly has been one of England's cogs in their attacking game especially in 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 the tight carrying and I think losing him bluntened um their attack but look we can't take anything away from South Africa's just never never say die attitude defensively they they held England out for about 24 25 phases on their own line five yards out it was monumental d um and I think you know, had England, had Farrell slipped that kick over just after half time in the stadium, you felt a little bit of a momentum shift, but it, he didn't nail it. And then three minutes later, Pollard nailed one the other end. And kind of it was, that was the kind of the, the, the final kind of change in momentum, which then allowed South Africa to kick on and, and, and finish the job. What stood out to me, you know, is that, is, is that actually when we talk about the South African team, we talk about the the quotas that you know there's three elements to that there's the white there's the black and then there's the colored which is which is recognized in south africa as well and they and there are quotas within quotas and what you saw is a very unified team at all levels and i think you know a hat tip to erasmus in terms of how he's gone about that and and as everybody's alluded to it it is just they've won a sporting competition but it it, it can unite it can inspire it can bring a smile to a, to a country and a population that, that is in desperate need of something. Actually, what I thought interesting, what was interesting about it was it puts in perspective, actually, the other se- semi-final that Wales played. Um, yeah. it, it makes that Wales result look really interesting. Um, maybe they're, they're better suited playing against each other. But, um, yeah, I mean, South Africa, we all picked England, as you say, which I got a lot of grief about. But, um, you know, on, on the day, South Africa, better team, no question. Done and dusted. 
One thing that we did here, and we might have been guilty of on this show, was saying how relieved England were not to have to face Wales. But on the other side of that, we missed the boat in not saying how relieved South Africa would be in not facing New Zealand. Right? I mean, that had to be an uplifting thing for them in the clubhouse. But, but George, <clears throat> did Eddie Jones F up this World Cup for England by going with the two Fs, Ford and Farrell, against the center-strong Springboks. Spring Easy for me to say. I don't know how you can even suggest that. I think the best fly half in the entire World Cup was George Ford. Um, I, I mean, it depends what what you believe in this game. I'm a bit of a Victorian in, in that I believe it's about, it's actually, uh, since Webb Ellis picked the ball up at rugby school a couple of hundred years ago, it's actually a passing game, and, and I want to see the ball passed. I thought Ford had a magnificent tournament. I think Farrell's a very good centre. If you think England lost this game because they were poor defensively, then you missed the, the boat entirely. The reason England England lost this game is they were tactically outthought and outfought entirely by Erasmus. All right, but George, you did say on this show that you actually lauded Eddie Jones for not starting Ford against Australia because of the matchup. And in this particular game, Ford was yanked. Yeah, but hold on, how was he? How, how is Jones going to win the game? You've got to think about if you're Eddie Jones. How is he going to win the game? He certainly wasn't going to win the game if, if, he, if he had picked largely a conservative kicking fly half in the shape of Farrell. Farrell, Farrell is, is obsessive. He's strong. He's got a huge discipline. He's got great, he's got great concentration. But he doesn't have the kind of flair that the Ford brings to the game. If he were to win this... They had to open up South Africa. Well, I think the original question was about the coaching, right? So um, George was a coach of some repute. Mike is a coach. I am a coach. And, you know, the coach that wins is a genius. All the other coaches in the tournament are Muppets. Um, so I, I think, you know, to, to focus on, on, this, on that selectorial decision, I think, is also a nonsense. So in a much... Shorter, briefer version. Mike, can you please come in and make it a threesome here for me on the nonsense that I'm spewing? Well, the reality for me is, and and I harped on about this before the competition started, he should have had Cipriani there. Because Cipriani Ah. could have unlocked a defence with 20 minutes to go. Cipriani unlocked South Africa in South Africa and won the game for England. And that's where the best fly half in the country was still in the UK. Um, the best attacking fly half in the country was still in the UK. Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it does come down to impact finishers, if that's what you want to call them, and being able to accommodate difficult personalities if it's going to help you win a, uh, a World Cup. And, you know, I, I was sceptical about not having Danny Cipriani in that 31, maybe for squad reasons, etc. But I think they're all professional rugby players and you've got to recognise the skills that certain players have. And Cipriani can play on the back foot. He can unlock things. He can make things out of nothing. And 20 minutes to go, George Ford was yanked. And what did they need on the bench? They needed somebody that could either win a game because they were only going to lose it. And I think that's what Danny Cipriani would have done and what a fit Danny Kerr would have done. Stephen, the Rugby World Cup in Japan, the crowds, the dollars generated versus the typhoon and the cancellations. If 
there were a reset button, and World Rugby were able to say yay or nay on Japan. Should they have gone to Japan again? Oh, absolutely. Massive, unadulterated success from any, any uh, criteria. Um, I think fan attendance, TV views, digital uh, views, all of the above. And in fact, they made a profit. In fact, they made, I read, £165 million. England made £150 million. So that's profit in addition to all the guarantees. So this has turned out to be a masterstroke, one of the very few by World Rugby, and they're to be commended for having done it. I was there for two weeks, had a fantastic time. I thought it was a superb tournament. Great decision. George, Eddie Jones, should he be fired? No. Mike? No. Stephen? No. Fair enough. All right, uh, watch this. If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig and Whistle, on West 36th Street. All right, we're back. Gentlemen, let's switch over to professional rugby and let's talk about what's in the news this week with Saracens. Uh, Mike, you are right in, in London. You're in England. You're, you're right in the, the center of the storm. Let me read this quote from The Guardian, our buddy Martin Pengeli's uh, publication. Stephen, you, you have something to say about that, don't yeah, you? It's a good liberal rank. I read All it every right. day. Okay, here it is. The enormous season-wrecking points penalty is set in the rules for a breach of over 650,000 pounds in a salary cap year. The financial penalty is three pounds for every one pound over the 350,000 permitted, suggesting Saracens were paying their players 1.7 million pounds over it altogether. Steve, just walk us through what's actually gone on here. Sure. Well, what this is in, in American terms is a salary cap violation. So the premiership has a salary cap. It's, um, I believe it's five and it works out to about seven total with academy and what have you. But each club is, is, required, is required to perform under that. So you can't play players more than that. This is for competitive equity. It's a very useful device the world over to keep balance going and to keep costs down, player costs specifically. Saracens, it's the not so dirty secret. Everyone's known for a while. Um, they have been accused of um, stockpiling players. And they, the way they've been able to do it are what's called co-investments, whereby the, the chairman, Nigel Ray, and Saracens have um, invested jointly in companies with players to give them additional income, which they claim is not part of a salary cap. Right. The premiership has now found, or an independent board has found that it is. They've been found uh, in breach of the salary cap requirement, and they've been fined the $5 million and deducted the points. Mike. After the Rugby World Cup loss, how does Mark McCall handle his stars on with this news in the locker room? I mean, it's if if this is upheld, this is huge because look, looking at the last couple of seasons, they're relegated because it's been so tight at the bottom, and to have the I mean, I think they're twenty nine points behind or something. And now, um, it's. It's colossal, and I think Mark McCall's probably. I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, he, he certainly has the most talented squad with with those international players coming in, but they won't be available for him for at least three or four weeks. Um, so you know, to to say they're in a in a in a crisis situation is an understatement. Do you do you try to tell the guys, okay, hey guys, this is we're, we're up against it. It's us versus them, and. You know, you, you can't give them any rest from the World Cup. You've got to get right back into it. Well, it hasn't got a choice. I think there's, there's, there's a set rest period. Um, 
I mean, the, these player welfare will come first and that will be dictated by the RPA and it will be in the agreements, the EPS agreements between England rugby and Premiership rugby. So there's... I'll be I'll be surprised if these boys are allowed to to play within the next in the next two or three weeks. George, as an American, I'm looking at 1.7 million pounds for a professional team with the salary cap. That doesn't even get you a lefty reliever for one out in American professional sports. The reality is, how can you have a salary cap in professional sports? So in other words, you tell Tiger Woods, don't win 82 tournaments in your career. You can only win 40 tournaments because then you've earned too much money. So the whole purpose of professional sport is that the the money shows your talent. The guy with the most money is essentially the best. Now, I I saw firsthand the county cricket in England how they paid the players, uh, and for but that was for taxation reasons. Now, all you have to do is to walk down the city of London and find the best lawyers and the best accountants that money can buy, and say to them, "Listen, we're a rugby club, and we want to pay the guys more money than we're actually allowed. Can you give us?" a legal way of doing that. And I'm pretty certain that's what Saracens did. Like, it goes against everything. So you turn around and say, you hire some kid and you say, you know, kid, you join this company, but you can never earn more than 30,000 bucks a year, no matter how good you are. This goes against everything that professionalism stands for. You got you got Steve Lewis with yeah, a harumph. Well, you're absolutely right. It's one of the great ironies, right, of the, the free market and the capitalist system. The American sport like this is is actually very very socialist with, in this regard. Um, a slightly different point is that um, that this is a a boys' club, right? So there are 13 votes in the Premiership, and there are no tears shed right now over Saracens being hammered like this. There are 12 other owners who want this to happen. Um, so you, you've got to remember that. It's, it's a boys' club where they, they set the rules, they agree the rules, Saracens broke the rules, they get caught, um, that's where we are. There's another side of this as well. And, it, and again, it comes from a quote from The Guardian. Let me read it to you. Without Nigel Ray and his loyal backing over 25 years, the club would not exist as a professional entity. Europe would, never have, broken, would have never broken the mold in terms of their remarkable team culture, and there would not have been developed so many England internationals never blazed a trail for English clubs in Europe and never broken the mold in terms of their remarkable team culture. Yeah, but you don't need to cheat to do it. Well, also, well that's, think, the, that's think, the argument right now. Have they cheated? Well, I think it's, also it's, as well, we're talking, about, we're talking about the 12 other owners. You talk about they all want it to happen. There's probably six or seven of them. Just having a quick phone call with their accountants and lawyers. <laughs> yep, of course. Make sure that their legal fiddle's on point. The other thing is, is if it's if we're going to have a a, uh, a capped salary market, it's got to be the same across the world. I don't see that going on in the top fourteen. I mean, there's talks of Montpellier coming in with a transfer fee for Cobus Reinhardt of nearly six hundred thousand euros. So, you know, I think if we're going to allow the free market to operate, and if Nigel Ray wants to to spend all his money on players and that's how it is, then that's how it should be. I think that's what happens in soccer and Manchester City can buy anybody they like. And it means that certain clubs have to find their way and see where they exist and and fit within um, in the system. So 
it, I mean, I what's think, what's the think, outcome going to be, Mike? I, I I I wouldn't be surprised if there, there's some deduction in in the um, in in the fine and and the points. And I you know I do agree with Steve is that it's been found so called of of massaging the rules. The extreme words are, are cheating. But the, but I think the reality is I think something has to change. Is either we are in a fully professional commercial free market for the players, or we're not. Um, and if that's the case, then that has to be governed across the world. It can't just be specified to one geography and then the top 14 can do as they like and they can do what they like in the Super 15. This also comes uh, under cautionary tales. You know, there are other leagues that this is going to be an issue for. Uh, once the salary cap, I'm talking a little bit closer to home, and if the salary cap is not enforced <laughs> yeah, um, and the, ge- the genie's out the bottle, it is very hard to put it back in. So... And this comes from your experience in this in professional rugby in the United States because you are actually the director of rugby for five professional teams on American but, but that, that was different because we owned every team, so we could control costs. So and we, how did that go? Not very well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's the problem here. You're gonna you have this... actually actually from that perspective, it went well. But there are other issues, obviously. But um, the, the salary cap. If you're an owner, you want it because theoretically it keeps your cost down. That's all well and good. When, when the, the league is competitive. But as soon as some, one team races ahead, egos want to catch up, or someone gets hammered and humiliated, they don't want to be a bottom of the table. That's when you get people cheating a little bit, and that's when the rules get bent or massaged, however Mike wants to put it. Yeah, and that, that collision's going to happen in Major League Rugby, and we're, we're almost out of time, but I want to give George a minute here on this one. George, capitalism or the continued socialism in rugby for it to survive? Uh, well, I told you South Africa will win the World Cup. I told you Japan would do well. And I'm telling you now, Saracens are going to win this argument because the argument of the professional clubs is actually unsustainable if Saracens have done their homework. And I cannot believe they haven't done their homework. As far as I'm concerned, the best professional gets paid the most money. And that's why Jeremy Corbyn is not going to win the election with his newfangled idea of of taxing anybody who can make a few shillings. Like, it it goes against the whole theory. And it's why the Berlin Wall came down. You cannot have... so Socialism will not work, comrade. All right, well, I got to throw a plug for our man David Barry because he's in that forensic legal realm. And I think either the Saracens or the Premiership should hire BlackRock and David, David Barry. Right before we go, guys, in 30 seconds, give me something that you're looking forward to this weekend in rugby. Mike, you're on the hot seat. Mine's close to home. I'm looking forward to watching my two boys play for their school team before I get back to work in San Diego. <laughs> Trinity, Hurstmere Point, Saturday, 11 a.m., 2.30 p.m. is getting on. You know, just like in Rugby X, you push the, you're pushing the laws, you're pushing the rules. All right, you'll get away with that because I didn't, I didn't tell you specifically that it had to be in the professional realm. Stephen, in the professional realm of rugby, because I know that you would say watching me play old boys was going to be the focus of your attention. Oh, it never been the top 100. Um, actually, what I'm looking forward to is getting back to one of my teams. That's the Army women are playing Quinnipiac this Saturday in the semifinal of the Naira Championship. They've had a great year, 7-1. and one. Going great guns. Hopefully win this Saturday and on to the final. No irony there going great guns in their you army. Like that? You like that? I like Don't wink at me ever again. George, let's finish with you, my friend. 
I I think what I'm 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 not looking forward to it at all because what well, we are back <laughs> now. No, no, we're back to this nonsense competition called the Pro 14 or something, in which half-assed teams with with put out a B team or whatever. Uh, it is utterly meaningless. Well, won't the and, South African teams have a little pep in their step for you, George? Won't they have that you know that effect? Well, the cheetahs think that. They may well be, but I mean, the other team are no good and they wouldn't knock the skin off a custard. Uh, uh, the Welsh teams, and it's a miracle. I don't know how Wales do so well when their club sides are so awful. Um, and it's just not a good competition. And it's just a pretense that, you know, we've got another competition and we haven't. So and what you're saying is you're looking forward to the Leinster match. No, what I'm saying is, like Mr. Friday, I'm going to be watching my grandsons play ah. uh, real rugby uh, on Saturday. Fair enough, fair enough. And I'm going to be watching the gents of New York from the sideline with a cold beer, and they're going to try to get me in the game, and I'm not doing it. Uh, but we've also, just to leave you folks with some, some, some quotes, we've got, if I'm not mistaken, uh, buggers muddle and skin off a custard. Google those, and we'll get back to you. On that note, I want to thank Mr. George Hook. <laughs> it's late over here you know it's okay for you tea time americans that's right and mr mike friday <laughs> just flew in from japan and boy his arms tired and mr Stephen lewis the champagne socialist all right thank you gentlemen and on that note thank you for joining us much appreciated i'm matt mccarthy in midtown manhattan for these gentlemen and rugby wrap-up signing off till next time